This message by Sam Shin, entitled "World Loving God," was recorded at Wellspring Church on December eighth, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is First John chapter two, verses fifteen to seventeen. Today's scripture reading is from First John chapter two, verses fifteen through seventeen. It reads, "Do not love the world or the things in the world." If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Thus far, the reading of God's word、you、may be seated. Good morning. We are again in First John, chapter two, verses fifteen through seventeen, as Michael just read. And when you read this particular passage, you might not realize this, but it's perhaps one of the most misunderstood passages of the Bible. And the reason is because the word "world" is one that has a range of meanings. And so, when you read this, you might think, "Wow, the world is an evil place, and you should avoid it at all costs." But here's the challenge: is that we sing a song that says, "Joy to the world, the Lord is come this season." Right? We sing that this season.、It、makes it seem as though the world doesn't sound all that bad when you sing a song like that. So then, is the Bible schizophrenic? Is God? What's he doing with the understand this understanding of the world? In fact, it's this idea of the world from First John two that Christianity gets the reputation of the don't do religion. You know, it turns Christianity into a religion of communes and monks. And the Middle Ages sort of began with the ascetic monk mentality based on this passage of the Bible. And so we have to really look carefully at this and examine what does it mean to live in this world and to understand what the Bible says when it talks about the world. So what I'm going to do is look at first the idea of what world living is not, world not living, world loving is not, and then second, which is what I think the Bible here and John is saying about the world is what is world lusting. So. The distinctiveness between world loving and world lusting, and then thirdly, who is this world loving God that we worship and that we await this Advent season? So, what world living world sorry world loving is not, what world lusting is, and who is this world loving God? So, what world loving is not? World loving or the world is not evil. It would really be a misunderstanding of the Bible to think that the world inherently, the physical world, is evil. We have to take a moment just again to look at all the different ranges of meanings when the Bible speaks of the word "world." The physical world certainly is not something that is evil, and the reason we know that is because, according to Genesis one thirty one, when God created the world. Moses writes that he made it good, and so that includes everything in the world. So we might think snakes are evil, 
In fact, we see in the Bible that Satan takes on the form of a snake, but that doesn't mean that inherently a snake is evil. Or a lion is not evil. When the lion is going after the wildebeest in one of those animal documentaries and you're saying, oh, that lion. Trust me, the lion is not evil. God did not create that lion evil. I know some of us think that mosquitoes are evil. We've had a mosquito in our house and in the middle of the night, you hear it buzzing. I, don't you hate that? You gotta hate that. We have this little mosquito trap and catch it and that's, that's a long story. But anyway, um, I, I am so tempted to think mosquitoes are evil. But you know, God created the mosquito. And the mosquito inherently is not evil. Another thing that God created is our, our bodies. All of it. Every part of it. And according to Genesis 131, he made it very good. So clearly the physical world, the human body, it is not evil. It's too simplistic too superficial to think that material, physical things inherently, instinctively are evil. And yet, we go down that road so quickly. We might think all movies are evil. Alcohol is evil. It's easy to think alcohol is evil. We think, you might think, now this might be controversial, but you might think the marijuana plant is evil. But I think when you read scripture, you can't inherently say that, that inherently this plant is evil. Dancing is not evil. Sex is not evil. Sports are not evil. Education and careers are not evil. Family vacations are not evil. A steak dinner is not evil. You know, drums and distortion on guitar. When I was growing up in the church, people would say the drums are the devil's instrument. Or the distortion on the electric guitar when you hear the metal sound crunch, now that's evil. There's Satan is that's Satan's voice. No, that's not true according to really the whole of scripture. So it is too simplistic to think that there are some evil physical things in this world that we must avoid. In fact, Paul encounters this in the church in Colossae, and he writes to them this. He says, Do not handle do not taste, do not touch. So these are in quotes. This is essentially a slogan that is being spread out around the church by certain false teachers. They're saying, do not handle, touch something because something physical, or as Paul says, referring to things that are all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. They have indeed an appearance, and he's speaking about the false teachers. He's saying, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What he's saying is that there are these false teachers who are going around saying there are these physical things in this world that you have to avoid in order to really worship God. And he's saying that actually that's no better than self-made religion. It's man-powered religion. And in actuality, he says they have to create those laws, to believe that something physical, hey, don't drink alcohol, or you're going to do something really evil. That inherently by doing that, you don't actually stop the indulgence of the flesh. It doesn't cure the sinful heart. There's a movie that I watched a while ago. It's, it's called Chocolat. And um, if you ever watch that movie, it's a, the mayor of the town believes that chocolate is corrupting the morality of that town. And so there's this chocolatier who comes in, this woman, 
And she creates this store of, filled with chocolate. And she's trying to get the people in the town to say chocolate is not evil. It's okay to eat it, but people have been mesmerized and sort of beaten into submission by this mayor. And he's done all that he could to implement every law to punish anyone who eats chocolate. It's not working, though, because slowly people are starting to eat it. And they're starting to enjoy it. And so he goes, the final scene is he goes to the chocolatier's uh, store in the middle of the night. And in this window, there is, on the storefront, there's all these chocolate statues. And he takes, uh, just goes and takes a knife and he starts cutting and destroying everything. And as he does, a little tiny piece of chocolate goes right on his lip. It flicks on his lip and he puts his tongue and he starts licking it. And, he, and his eyes just lighten, and then he starts wolfing down every bit of chocolate. And so the end of the scene is he's there lying there with this crazed look, laughing, eating chocolate with all over his face. And I watched that movie and I thought, that is truly the, the problem of legalism and the inability to understand the Bible's perspective on what is good and what is evil. That there is nothing inherently evil about the physical world. And to create law to try to stop people from, quote, sinning by taking part or eating or drinking or whatever it might be, it actually undoes the very gospel that we so cherish and love. It, it never cures the heart of lust and of sin and of rebellion against God. Laws don't do that. Something else has to happen. We also know that, just to really consider this, is that James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. First Timothy 4.4, Paul says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So trying to enforce a do-not-touch law, or do not eat law, or do not drink law, or do not dance law, or do not go here law, it cannot change the heart. It will not. And in fact, just like the mayor, it actually sort of embellishes and even um, exacerbates the problem. The heart will act on its own, not because of something out there, but because of something inside. And John is not trying to tell the church that the world must be avoided at all costs, which leads to the second, what the world is not. The world is not escapable. God does not intend for us to try to leave the world. There are some today, again, who believe, well, the world is so evil that you should avoid it at all costs. And again, there is wisdom and discernment about being wise about how we approach the world. But to try to escape it and to avoid it and to hide from it, hide our children from it, it will never be able to turn one's heart to Christ. Does the Bible teach escaping the world? I mean, all we need to do is look at Jesus himself. Now, Jesus was criticized as a glutton and a tax collector, and a sinner. Why? Because he went to sinners' homes. He went to the homes of tax collectors and prostitutes. 
and he ate with them, according to Matthew eleven nineteen. To do so was incredibly risky on Jesus' um, reputation because he was obviously a, a teacher, a rabbi, someone who was supposed to be have high moral standards. And that's the thing is that in his society, they sort of saw the world as a place where you have to have, especially a teacher, you couldn't have any stain at all. And the way you get polluted is by hanging out with certain types of people. And so surely when Jesus is eating dinner with these men and women, and these are people who probably spent a lot of time in certain types of places, their language probably wasn't so clean. They were probably drinking up a storm. They, they probably didn't act that much different with Jesus there. And so if I could have only been a fly in the room in that place where Jesus is sitting with these tax collectors and said, I'd love to see, here's the problem. If I was a fly in that room and I saw it, I would think, okay, whatever Jesus did, I'm going to do exactly that. And that's automatically, we'd create a whole handbook of laws of how to act with non-Christians or quote sinners. We're always trying to create law, always trying to think that some sort of rule book helps me to follow God. But what we do need to know is that Jesus, he was able to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's a tough tension. And obviously, none of us are Jesus. We're not perfect morally. We, we can't withstand perhaps the pressures or we, we can't uh, be in that place and perfectly walk that line. But that doesn't mean that we have the excuse of saying, well, we don't have to do that at all. Jesus prays to the Father about his disciples, about followers of Christ, about me and you. This is what he prays in John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So to be a Christian, according to this verse of what Jesus is praying to the Father, is stay in the world and interact with it and see the world as a place where we have to engage. We have to be winsome, faithful. We have to be a witness. And it also means that we see the world through spiritual eyes. We must undo the notion that spiritual things happen inside the church and secular things happen outside the church. And that mentality is exactly what creates an escapism mentality. Because we tend to think that, okay, in the church, you can act like a Christian, you can sing Christian songs and behave in a Christian way, but in the world, you can do whatever you want. And that dualism is exactly escapism. It's the idea that we, we either need to escape by completely separating ourselves and join a commune and create this Christian ghetto so that we only do Christian things, or we have this dualism, which is no different than escapism. We go into the world, we have two different uh, lives to live. The Christian life, the holy Christian life, and the secular, um, I am, I'm just like everybody else person. What Jesus is saying is that to be a pastor is not more spiritual than to be a business person, or to be a teacher, or to be a plumber. That there is no tiering of, okay, Christian jobs are missionary, pastor, serving in a church somewhere, 
and then the non-Christian secular jobs is over here. Rather, we have to see it all together because Jesus says, I do not ask them that you take them out of the world, but instead that you keep them from the evil one. That's what he prays for is that wherever you are, whatever you do, whatever career path you're on, you can honest, honestly engage the world and yet honor God concurrently. And the way that Jesus is mediating for you and helping you is that he's saying, I'm with you and I will protect you from the evil one and his schemes to try to veer you off, to take shortcuts, to lack integrity, to not own up to your mistakes that you make that actually could be costly to your career path. That to be a Christian means to honor God with your integrity and the way you speak truth and the way you are gracious to someone who doesn't deserve grace. This mindset is how we engage the world and not try to escape from it. So that's world loving. John, the rest of the Bible, presses us towards that end. Do not disengage, but engage and stay in it and be faithful. Trust the Lord. But there is a problem, and it's not world-loving, it's world-lusting. And there's a difference between the two. World-loving appreciates the world and its good gifts as from the Lord. As James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. We know that they're to be enjoyed by a really gracious and beneficent Father. But if we look at verse 16, we see something different. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So in this verse, there are three lusts. Um, one, two are very clear lusts. The third is a different type of lust. The first lust is desires of the flesh. The word desire is actually, a lot of other translations use the word lust. And the word literally in the Greek is over-desire or above and beyond desire, meaning that desire is not evil. So John doesn't use the word desire. He actually says extreme desire. Desire is not evil. And desiring the things of the world are not evil, as I said, because of the reasons I just gave. But to over-desire them or to want them above everything else, now that's evil. When you desire something, and many of these things are good things, the world's pleasures, they're good things that God wants you to enjoy. But when you desire them so much that it controls you, it controls your actions, your mind, your, your dreams, your visions. When you sleep at night, your think, your thoughts, you get anxious moments because you want something so badly. When it becomes your greatest pursuit, that's exactly what John is speaking about here. And in this way, we have to remember, desires are not inherently evil, but our heart that makes the objects of our longings more valuable than anything or anyone at all costs, including God, that's what's evil. And the Bible has so many illustrations of this. I could have given you a ton. I'm going to give you a few. The first we need look uh, no further than the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes 
and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Clearly, the fruit is not evil, but the eyes leading to a desire that went far beyond just wanting something, it was an over-desire, caused her to take. Same thing happens to Esau in Genesis chapter 25, verses 29 to 34. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. It was actually red lentil stew or red bean stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a, a, a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The Hebrews writer comments on what happened to Jacob and Esau. And this is what he writes. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, I'm sure many of us have been really hungry. Perhaps you've exercised rigorously and then you come, you're starving. You say, I want, I'm hungry. Esau was a hunter. He was on the run. He was always hunting. So, of course, he was very hungry. Was he starving to death? Most likely not. He was just very hungry. And in that moment, when he was so hungry, and guess what he just like the uh, the mayor of the town, Chocolat, he smells the red lentil stew. I mean, who who really likes red lentil stew anyway? Okay, a couple of people. <laughs> he smells this stew, whether it smelled good or not, probably smelled decent for a starving man. I mean, for someone who was very hungry and famished, smelled really good. And at that moment, he was willing to do anything for it. And he sold something that was really eternal, lasting, for a bit of stew. What Hebrews says is that, if you look at that verse in Hebrews 12, 15 through 17, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. You know, the story about Esau is not about sex. Did you notice that? It's about food. But the point of it is that that same urge and drive that causes people to Essentially be like beasts where just the drive of wanting sexual fulfillment causes someone to do whatever, anything. It's their faithfulness to their husband or wife. The implications of what it's going to do to their children, their grandchildren. Perhaps their job for those of us who are in pastoral ministry. The church. You know, for the moment of acting literally like an animal like a beast where they cannot control themselves and they sell everything for it. That type of mentality regarding sex is exactly the same heart and urge and inability to control as what Esau did when he was saying, for a stew, I will sell whatever. I don't care about it. And then once you eat it, we all know how it's like. Suddenly, you know, red lentil stew, not so good after all. You feel you're okay, but what you had, you start despising it because that reminds you of what you've sold yourself to. 
David does this with Bathsheba. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. So David sent messengers and took her. Same words as we heard in the garden. And she came to him and he lay with her. Again, David loved God. But in that moment, God was nowhere in view, nowhere in sight. There was only one view. And that one view controlled the rest of his life. He sold everything for a moment's satisfaction. And it controlled him. So John tells us that the lust of the flesh is an over-desire for God's good gifts. Food, drinks, sex, many good gifts. Those are three wonderful gifts of the Lord that he has given to us to enjoy in its proper, right, biblical context. To be worldly is not a person who enjoys these things. So that's something, like if someone drinks a really ice-cold glass of beer and you see them drinking it, the Christian shouldn't be thinking, wow, that's a worldly person right there. If someone is enjoying a glass of wine, it's not, oh, they're so worldly. Or, you know, the... That's the problem with the way that we view the world is we automatically assume the physical thing is evil. But if we lust after these things, if we over-desire them, then really we are worldly. Where We are in a, a state where we have a view, a worldview where God is in, not in existence at all. Practically, we are atheists in that moment. In that moment, when we lust and give over ourselves to it, we are practical atheists. So there are a few questions I have for you regarding um, food, drink, sex, whatever it might be. Are you easily controlled by what you see in those moments? Do you care at all about whom you hurt, whom you bother, whom you impact? Are you considering the costs of things? And usually, if you're not preparing yourself for this, then you will not consider costs, implications. So you have, we all have to say, I have that heart. There is no one in this room who is inherently able to say, I never have any temptation to over-desire anything. That's just not possible. Not with this heart. Instead, we have to already begin the process of saying, Lord, help me to not want to succumb to the idea that I don't care about implications. I don't want to think about the cost. I just want to have pleasure in the moment. So when you are drinking something, alcohol, and you're about to take your second, third drink and about to step into a car, that has implications. And unless you are preparing yourself early in advance in your own heart, then you're no different than David and Bathsheba or Esau. You are succumbing to your over-desire. Do you regularly give thanks to the Lord for all of God's good gifts? Because you know that they are a gift. And if God should remove gifts from you, you would still be content. That there's nothing in your life. If you love coffee, you should be able to say, I'm willing to give up coffee. 
And if you can't, and if you say, I cannot do that, and the first thing you do is run over here. During the break, you just run up and you, where's the syringe so I can pump it directly into my veins? If that's you and you say, I will, I can't, I, no way, I won't be able to survive. That's the same heart as, that's an Esau, I need that red lentil stew. I need it. I'll do anything for it. Can you fast anything? We do that once, at least as a church, once a year in January. And the reason we do that is to remind ourselves, I do not want to over-desire anything. Because to do so is to live as though I do not believe in God. And so this is a symbol, a sign of saying, that which I love or I enjoy is a gift, and I don't really ultimately need it because I actually want the giver of that gift more than the gift. If you cannot go a day without looking at your phone, then you know that that's something you over-desire. And you might say, well, I need it for work, and sure, for work, but we all know it's more than work. If we're honest with ourselves, I need Netflix. It helps me to wind down. This is a, it's a, it's a reminder to us. If someone who cares for you, here's another question, asks you to, hey, can you not drink tonight? Like, I know you feel like you need that to really relax, but can you step away from the bourbon a little bit? And if you say, how dare you say that to me? You're such a legalist. If we can't do that, or can you not eat as much? I, I know sometimes when you, you're at home and uh, this happens every once in a while, blue moon, but there'll be no meat at the table. It's a, you need, you need, we need to have a vegetable meal. And I would think, this is not a real meal. This is for our bunny, you know? I, but if there's this entitlement, I need meat. Um, and I can't live without it. That says something about my heart. I know you think, no, come on, that can't be real. But it is. That's the same heart for husbands or wives when it comes to sexual intimacy. You know, if you feel like, I have to have that, or else I'm not being loved. When we get angry and frustrated by anything that is withheld from us, all we need to do is look at that little child that is throwing that tantrum because something is being withheld from them. My friends, we adults, we throw our own tantrums. The only difference is we don't throw it by banging the floor and kicking and arching our backs like salmon. We, we uh, instead, we seethe in our hearts. We start plotting, okay, well, you're going to do that to me. I'm going to do that to you. That's the tantrum. We're just a lot more sophisticated about it. So again, this is, you cannot read this passage of First John and say, this is the, hey, don't watch rated R movies. Don't go to nightclubs. Don't wear that t-shirt. Bourbon is evil, whatever. It's, by the way, I don't drink bourbon, but <laughs> I don't know why it kept on coming into my mind while I was reading this, working on this. But um, the, it's not about that. That's the problem with the way that we view Christianity and the life of faith is we think it's don't do this, 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 this. And if you don't do all these things, then you're really holy and, and good and honoring God. The Bible does not make that claim. Instead, John is asking you to consider that these are good things, but would you be willing to surrender good things for the greatest thing, the ultimate thing? That's what the Bible asks us to think and to consider.
Secondly is that it's the lust of the eyes, the desires of the eyes. It's obviously linked to the lust of the flesh. We saw that in, in the garden as well with David and Bathsheba where David looks and that's what causes him to act. John, it's very interesting, in John chapter 9, 12 times he uses the word eyes in John chapter 9. And it's the story of his healing of the blind man. Jesus' healing of the blind man. This physically blind man was healed, finally could see. And the rest of the story in John 9 is the Pharisees and the Jews who are questioning this man because he was healed. And uh, they, they were just so angry that he was healed by Jesus. And so one thing they didn't realize is that the question of who really is blind here? John 9.39 says this, For judgment, Jesus says, I came into this world that, uh, that those, who do not, uh, those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those who see may become blind. That is to say that lusting with your eyes is so fixated on what we see that in actuality, we become blinded to it. You use your eyes to lust, but your heart becomes blind. And so when that object is more important to you than anything else in this world, there's a blindness to that. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 5, 27, 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This person cannot stop using his eyes. And again, I said it earlier, the human being, the human body is very good. God created it that way. God created our desire for a man or a woman in a way in which it honors him in marriage, in the covenant of marriage. But when we have an over-desire of that for someone outside of that covenant, then it endangers our souls and it actually is a spiritual blindness. Even though we're using our eyes to see, we're actually blinding ourselves in the process. That's why pornography is so despicable. It really is. It works powerfully, but it, it works to enslave and to control. It takes the very beautiful, good gift of physical beauty and sexuality and sexual intimacy, gifts that are intended as a re- to be enjoyed Enjoyed in marriage as a part of the covenantal expression of our relationship to God. And it's to say, though, pornography says, what I am looking at at this moment right now matters to me more than my wife or husband, my children, my work, my ministry, my God. So every look, every glance we look at a person lustfully over desiring is to say, I don't care about anything at all in my life other than that image. For an image, we are selling our birthright, our identity. You you see why Esau, what he did, again, that's about food, but we are so quick to look at Esau and say, that's idiocy, why would you do that? Well, how many of us are selling our birthright by looking at a screen? on a phone or a computer. 
To do that is idiocy. And yet we do it so easily and so readily and it destroys. It's a destructor. This is why social media can be so destructive. When we envy another person's physical beauty, as fake as it often is, or when we envy a person's academic success or multiple friend groups. You know, this Christmas season, a lot of people, I don't want to burst everyone's buzzles, bubble, so please uh, take this with a grain of salt. But at the same time, I do think it is a struggle. We create these Christmas cards of photos of a family, and probably every person in this room is going, oh, no. <laughs> and we, we take it, and then the numbers that we get, we put it in. I, I, our family does this. We put it on our wall. What's interesting is you, you go to other people's houses and you start looking at them and say, I don't have as many as they do. Or you say, wait a second. They didn't send me a Christmas card. I don't have that card. Do you notice how that happens? Why does that happen? It's Trust me, it's not because the Christmas card is evil or the printing of our pictures is evil. Our hearts are prone to wander. We have the Esau heart. And so, multiple friend groups, how many? Oh, their social media, it just, the, the Pinterest-inspired beautiful home. All sorts of luxury items. Oh, they went to that restaurant. It's, that, that vacation is so extravagant. We love, we want to say in one hand, we want to show everyone what I'm doing. But how tempting it is for everyone to say, how come I wasn't invited? How come I didn't get to go there? And that over-desire, it controls us. We start thinking about it. We start imagining. We start thinking, well, what do I now have to do to up that person, to up the standards? My friends, we are no different than the Pharisees or Esau. If we're honest with ourselves, if we examine our hearts, we have that same heart. Jesus calls this heart a whitewashed tomb filled with bones and disgusting, rotting, decomposing souls. What we look at matters. If you struggle with your eyes, with pornography, with social media, with your own sense of beauty, or lack thereof, what you believe to be so, if you're constantly staring at the mirror in your house or at a gym, my friend, you're in danger. That lust is robbing you of contentment. And it robs you of the very many tons of gifts that the Lord has given to you to enjoy. You know, he's everything we have. God wants us to enjoy it. But he's saying, trust me. Do not over-desire anything. Trust that the gifts I've given you will satisfy your soul. Lastly, um, the pride of life. John doesn't call pride of life lust here. But let me say out of the three, this is the worst of all. It's sort of the progression. It's lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and now the worst of all, the pride of life. It is arrogant boastfulness. It's a closed heartedness. It's the type of arrogance that led Herod to receive the crowds shouting out to him saying, you have the voice of a God. And he started saying, well, actually I do. And then it says that night he was eaten by worms and died. The word life in that verse is the word bios, where we get the word biology. But that word bios is not what usually is the word that the New Testament uses to 
describe life. The word life that's usually used is zoe. And so bios, it really is about the physical life. That is, that this person is so arrogant in their boastfulness and they just think that what they have is always better than everybody else. So their material goods, their gifts, their talents, their beauty, their social networks, their intelligence. When they have all of that, they don't need God at all. Not at all. So because of that, he just believes everything that they have is better. And so they treat people with disdain. You know, you go to the restaurant, the person, the waitstaff that's serving you, just treat them with disdain as though they should be your slave. And everyone you encounter, people, whether it's the homeless, those who go to City Impact, I hope you don't go with your nose go like this or, you know, where you're thinking, ah, it's just so dirty, I don't want to deal with that. We, we have to be in a place where we see the world through the lens of God. And the lens of God is that I am a sinner just like that person. That person is created in God's image just like me. They deserve dignity and respect regardless of their station of life what they smell like, what they look like, what they do for a living. And when we do that, we guard ourselves from this pride of life. But it is this pride of life, this is, which is the worst lust of all, because we want to be better than everyone else. Whether we realize it or not. There is an answer to all of these. And it's the fact that we actually worship a world-loving God. All of these other things are fleeting pleasures. But listen to what John says in verses 16 and 17. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. These lusts are signposts. They're warning signs. They're Danger signs that says you are in danger of living a life apart from Jesus. And you can't have these lusts control you and still say you worship God. John tells us that it's not from the Father. If you live this way, this is not from God. We've been learning from John that there's darkness and light. There's no middle ground. There's no gray. You're either dark or you're light. And so these lusts, if we're giving into them constantly, we're trying to live this double life, then we're in danger perhaps of actually, no matter what we say, that yes, I am a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but our actions in our heart is showing that I actually don't believe him at all. I am an Maybe I'm not just a practical atheist, maybe I am an atheist. And so Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, you can only have one master, God or money. Again, scripture is so clear, there's no middle ground for us. If you love anything, even good things, even your spouse or your children or your job or your friend group or your popularity or anything. And you cannot have it. If you love your phone so much, you cannot have it removed from you. Then you probably love that thing or that person more than God himself. And it means, according to what John says, the love of the Father is not in you. This is not what God wants of us. We all know John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his son. We see from there that God does love the world. He loved it so much that his own son was born not into the world's glamour, but instead to take on the world's filth. 
the world's sin, our filth, our sin. And this world was not his treasure. You know, Satan, when Jesus was in the desert, he tried to tempt him with, just forget about the cross, enjoy comfort. You don't need to do the Father's will, just do your own. It's everything that we struggle with, Jesus struggled with to the nth degree. And yet, he refused to trust that the wor- this world inherently, to trust in it, to enjoy it, is any better than to enjoy God. Far less. The world was not his power. Though his followers tried to make him a king to claim the world's power. The world was not his truth. Though Pilate tried to force him to say, what is truth? And to, to really question it, to wrestle with it, to press him on it. For Jesus, if anyone could rightly have the pride of life, it was Jesus. But he as God emptied himself. In this season, he was born in a manger. Manger meaning where animals ate out of. Um, he was not exalted as a the king of Rome. He was hung on a cross where a sign said, this is the king of the Jews. Jesus, in this way, showed he was a world-loving God. So then why should we here lust after something that, according to John, is passing away? You know, it's not as though to say Jesus is going to get rid of the world. When we were speaking about heaven, he wants us to enjoy it far more than we ever will. And the promise is you will. Whatever you taste, whatever you enjoy here, infinitely more in the new heavens and the new earth you will enjoy. And you will never lack satisfaction. You will never miss anything. It will be so delightful, so tastes so good. Everything you see will be spectacular all the time, forever and ever. But you have to be willing to not sell your birthright for red lentil stew. We're all Esau's. Instead, though, may the God who was lowly in a manger call you to remember that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge that our hearts are prone to wander and that we so readily are willing to sell our identity, our greatest hope, our joys, our delights for but fleeting moments. But your word tells us that you last forever. And your promise is that you, at your house, there's the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Help us not to buy into the lies of this world to think that these good gifts that you so bountifully provide for us, they are never in and of itself satisfying. You as the giver of these good gifts help us to be satisfied. And in this season of Advent, Christmas, as we await the coming of our Savior, Lord, you came into this world not as an earthly king, wrapped and... and, uh, in in the lap of luxury, but instead you came in poverty so that you would remind us, O Lord, that 
this world is not in and of itself satisfying. It never will be. That you have something so much greater for us, something that is lasting forever. And may this communion be a reminder of that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name.